Welcome to the BMJ podcast. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about rural healthcare, specifically the difficulties that distance, demographics, and funding have introduced into the world's COVID 19 response. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and in this conversation, I'm joined by three journalists who have written together about three areas of the world which have had vastly different experiences of the pandemic. Hi, my name is Kata Karat, and I am a science journalist and documentary filmmaker based in Ecuador, but I'm originally from Hungary. Hi, my name is Lugia Lundlovu. I'm a journalist based here in Laos, Zimbabwe. Good to be joined. Hi, good to be here. I'm Mike Forster Rothbard. I'm a photojournalist and I live in a small city in upstate New York and that's where I've been reporting from. Well, thank you all for joining us. Let's open this by asking, what made you decide that it was important to report on rural healthcare? I'd say in the US at least, uh, media coverage has really been focused on urban areas. I mean, that's where the bulk of the population is and that's where the pandemic was the worst in the beginning. Um, And then over time, COVID has spread out into the rural areas, but people in rural areas have a very different experience of dealing with the disease. And so that's what made me interested in looking at COVID in in this area where I live. And specifically rural healthcare workers, I feel like we, heard again in the urban areas, we heard a lot of reports about the first couple waves of the pandemic, how overwhelmed the hospitals were and there were, you know, people dying and morgues and trucks outside the hospitals. Um, But once again, the, the, the rural nurses got overlooked. And it was really interesting in this project talking with Langello and Kata about how, how many similarities we saw between our countries. We, we wanted also to compare in terms of uh, what, uh, what, what, what sort of, uh, you know, I'm from the developing country and uh, the developed countries in terms of how uh, the systems uh, operated around during the COVID pandemic. So uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that link in terms of the developing and the developed uh, being highlighted in the article mm, and seeing what what similarities and and differences exist, um, if we start with one similarity, uh, which is going to be distance. Obviously, in rural areas there are there's more spaces between people, kind of by definition. And I think Kata and some of the interviews that you did, um, that really came through as being you know a, a key issue. Uh, definitely. I think for, for Ecuador, at least, uh, distance was one of the big themes. And even for me, like literally on the map, it was about the communities I visited were about 300 kilometers. But in reality, it took me seven to nine hours, depending on road access and weather and vehicle, like you would have to have a four-wheel drive to get to those areas. And one of the kind of funny but mostly shocking issues I also had was that as the pandemic was uh, progressing, rural areas had 
less and less economic means. And sadly, they also decided to take more drastic and drastic measures. And I knew the area before where I did my interviews because I did a documentary there. And I also work with a scientist there time to time doing some collaborations regarding science communication. And um, once we went together and she told me, no, 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 don't take that road anymore. Uh, cars are getting hijacked there and people are getting tied up. I'm like, oh, okay. So we have to take another road then. Um, and then basically people who work there as rural healthcare workers, they have no help from the government. The Esmeraldas province is also called the green province and it's one of the most diverse one with Afro-Ecuadorians, indigenous people and mestizos. Um, but it's also super jungly and basically people are just there to fend for themselves. And these rural communities do have healthcare centers time to time, not all of them, because one could be responsible for seven different communities, which add up roughly to two to 3000 people. Um, but basically what shocked me the most uh, is that these doctors and nurses and dentists, they're on their own. So basically, oh, you have to vaccinate everyone against COVID. Well, you have to solve your transport to get the vaccines. And by the way, just because of the bureaucratic issue, this village belongs to this hospital. So you have to drive for three hours or four hours, but the other one just an hour away belongs to another hospital, another province. So they have to drive for 11 hours one way. So I was like, what the hell? Um, and they just had to solve it themselves. And these are normally inexperienced young doctors and nurses who have never been to that community. So imagine they have to earn trust, then the pandemic comes and they have to basically beg people to help them with transportation. And then in the beginning, they, for example, with the vaccination, they also had to take care of soldiers. So, and, all, all the gasoline and the food, not just for themselves, but the soldiers drive them there, drive them back. Also, some communities are so far that they would really have to walk carrying in the sizzling sun, the vaccines in a small cooler box. So that was absolutely blow my mind. Yeah. And uh, you've got some um, audio that you recorded with one of your um, interviewees. Who's that? Who's this we're about to hear? So basically, I talked to Dr. Um, Michelle Rodriguez, who was um, a rural doctor in the community of Cristobal Colon, which I think is very ironic because the community is named after Christopher Columbus. Um, and it's a jungle community, basically with about uh, 2,000 people. Um, and she told me about her experiences. And she did that in Spanish, and we've had that translated and uh, revoiced for this. There are two people here who are sometimes available to transfer a patient, like someone injured when we face an emergency. This is because when ambulance drivers hear that it's Cristobal Colón, they don't want to come here. They say this place is very far. So doctors here have to find a way to get their patients transferred to a better healthcare center or directly to the hospital. 
And we always have to officially refer these patients to the hospital in Kininde in order for them to be attended. I have never seen an ambulance to come here to this day, or even the police. There were some cases when I requested the help of the police, but they never came, and I alone had to manage the situation to be able to help the patient. I mean, of course, they provided us with the vaccines, but a little more support was lacking. Because imagine if we couldn't count on the community for the transportation to go to the hospital, how we would have gotten there to pick up the vaccines. The whole journey with the motorcycle would have taken many more hours because a motorcycle is much slower than a car. And there were days when it rained a lot. And if we wouldn't have had a car, in what kind of conditions we would have arrived. So at least we managed to arrange it in this case. I was like, doctor, you have to come and pick up the vaccines, but you have to find your own way. How and with what kind of transportation you get here. Oh, and it has to be a large vehicle, because apart from you, you also have to take some soldiers with you. So all of this was tedious. So we didn't have support in this aspect. I mean, as if by just giving us the vaccines, they have already done a lot, and you have to figure out how to arrange everything else, even if you have to pay it from your own pocket, or the community has to pay for getting the vaccines transferred here so that all these communities around here can get them. So it was more like that. So I think uh, as we talked about that, you know, distances is, is obviously a big issue. And uh, presumably that's the same in Zimbabwe. Yes, uh, correct. Um, so when the COVID pandemic hit Zimbabwe in March 2020, it really exposed some serious gaps in the rural healthcare system stemming from underfunding and infrastructure issues. So uh, our rural healthcare has been struggling all along before COVID-19 came. So um, when the COVID-19 came, it actually uh, exposed these serious gaps, like the lack of accommodation for healthcare workers, uh, poor transport network systems. So we'd find out that the one rural hospital will have one ambulance, and that ambulance will break down. So, so when COVID-19 came, there was that need to really use that ambulance to also transport uh, you know, the vaccines. So it, it, it was uh, a really, really uh, serious issue. You would find out that uh, some, 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 some district hospitals, such as the Plant Hospital, which uh, the Minister of Health actually then decided to say it was a central hospital in rural areas. They, they, they decided to say, uh, let's, let's use this hospital as, the, as a center for quarantining the COVID uh, pandemic patients and also to cater for the cross-border because Plant District Hospital is on the border between uh, uh, Botswana. So we find out there are a lot of uh, cross-border trading going to Botswana and all that kind of thing. So the hospital was incapacitated in that in that regard. It had no no ICU, no you know equipment, doctors and nurses that uh, that kind of a thing it was struggling so the central government then had to 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 intervene to say let's kind of uh let's kind of uh, uh centralize everything and look for resources to, uh, to try and address the challenge and they tried that uh but then uh still the lake uh the hospitals are still lacking in that regard mm. 
and uh, the distances that uh, are traveled by people in the rural areas. We'll find out people in rural areas will walk about uh, 60, uh, 30 kilometers to their nearest clinic or facility, health facility. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, you mentioned there about um, resources. Now, COVID in the UK, at least, was very resource intensive. People required oxygen, um, long stays in ICU if they were unable to support their own breathing. Um, So was that kind of supportive care available to these rural populations or did it have to be built quickly or, you know, did it just never arrive? Yes, uh, basically the challenge has been, uh, you know, medicines in the hospitals. There's been lack of medicines and uh, the hospital didn't have uh, such such kind of facilities. So they also, uh, the, the diaspora community, you know, the, the people that had gone out of Zimbabwe to look for greener pastures. Also, they'd, they'd also known about that issue. So they they tried to, to, to do fundraising so that they are able to source those materials outside. So they managed to source an X-ray machine, which was, uh, which was, uh, which they, 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 they collected monies and, and sent it back to, 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 to the hospital. So you see that uh, it's, it's a serious issue. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. They had no, they had no, you know, such kind of machines, such, such, such kind of machines, simple as, as X-rays, you know. So it, it has been uh, a difficult uh, uh, situation in the hospitals, and also emanating from the large budgetary uh, that is allocated to, to, to the health sector. So the country doesn't even meet the, the Abuja declaration, which says. Uh, which, which says uh, governments are compelled to at least uh, 15% uh, budget should go to, health, uh, to the health sector. So you'd find out these are the issues that the country is trying to deal with uh, at the moment. And, um, I mean, did, we, did you see any change in, in budgets being um, moved around? Was stuff actually reallocated um, to, to healthcare in general? And and rural healthcare specifically? Yes, um, in that regard, I was lucky to, 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 to have a media tour with the minister when he was, uh, he was actually touring the, the Plumtree Hospital District to assess uh, the situation there. So we, we, we went there with the officials and uh, we taught the, the whole entire hospital where they would try, where, where, where then they would, they'd found resources to actually put up the ICU center. But still, you'd find, you'd find out that uh, uh, the job that was done there, it was just substandard because of lack of resources. So the, the resources that they would, uh, they would find maybe to just build, you know, so they would then, uh, they would then uh, try to, 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 you know, Built on the structure that is already there, that is already dilapidated. Maybe try to, to to kind of to kind of renovate that kind of an old structure. So you see that uh, because of limited resources and because of of this COVID that was coming in hitting hard. Uh, and and by the way, 
Plant Hospital was actually identified as the infection, uh, the, the, the high-risk the high transmission area during uh, COVID-19, during the beginning phases of COVID-19. So a lot of returnees from Botswana in South Africa were, t were testing positive. So there was that need to, to, to quarantine them. So the hospital didn't have that kind of, uh, you know, uh, capability to, 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 to address the issue. So, yeah, so the resources that were just trickling in, the, the, the under-resourced government uh, tried by, all, by, by, by its means to, to, to kind of uh, address the issue, but uh, the resources were not enough. And talking about those issues, we have a clip of your interview here with John Manguero, who's Deputy Minister of Health in Zimbabwe. You know, there's a task force that is mobilizing resources for building isolation centers, negative pressures, oxygen. This has gone on very well to people. And I can say even in Blawai, you go and see Exilene has got negative pressures, UBS. These have been done very well. And we expect that EAS plum tree, as we are going to see the hospital, if there's any weakness that's still there, we should be able to get mobilized monies from the mobilization uh, organization that is dealing with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. There's some mob uh, resource mobilization, which is led by the Minister of Local Government, Housing, uh, Mr. Julaimoy, who is the leader there. We will continue to check and make sure everyone gets their piece of uh, the money and every area must actually be appraised about the presence of these monies. And if there are any difficulties they are facing, they can always communicate with us. Now, Mike, talking about politics, um, it didn't occur to me that local politics, obviously people have different opinions, perhaps in rural and urban areas, but literally the proximity of people who are making decisions um, to the, the, the population around them uh, is quite different in rural areas. And that came through in some of the interviews that you've done. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the, the politics of uh, rural New York State? Let me start by de describing Delaware County a little bit where I was doing my reporting. It's a, it's a very rural county. And even though we're only four hours from New York City physically, uh, mentally, it's a completely different place. So it's it's in the Catskills, you know, rolling farmland and hill wooded hills. And there is not actually a single city in the county. Uh, the largest population center is about 3,700 people. And the population has not actually changed much in the past 150 years. So only slightly more than half the population is vaccinated at this point, which is lower than the national average. And it's kind of surprising looking back the last two years that it seems like public officials did not anticipate this, but there's really been a, a strong anti-vax push. You know, you know, it's not every day, but there are, you know, protests sometimes on Main Street. There is sort of People are quietly political about it, I think. They feel this 
pressure from the government that somehow they're doing the wrong thing by not getting vaccinated and then they push back against that. It's interesting. I I talked to one nurse, a hospice nurse, who had only gotten vaccinated because she was required to by the state. And she said no one else in her family was vaccinated. And she actually had a lot of misgivings about it, but decided, she said she'd been a nurse for more than 30 years. She wasn't going to give that up just because of the vaccine. Um, she said, what else am I going to do at this point in my life? But other family members definitely were not going to get vaccinated. And it's interesting somehow, I think because of national politics, the vac the whole vaccination thing became very politicized early on, and there's really no way to retreat from that. So now public health offices are sort of constantly trying to promote vaccinations and encourage people to wear their masks and so on. But at this point, it seems like very few people are going to change their mind unless they have some kind of personal negative experience with COVID. You know, I definitely hear stories of people saying, you know, once my mom got COVID, I realized maybe I should get vaccinated. Um, but that's the only thing that seems to influence people. It's, um, and it's interesting because public health workers in the US are, are really known for doing apolitical public service activities. You know, they do rabies vaccinations and they educate people about smoking and they do safety checks for car seats and seatbelts. And so they really were not prepared for this suddenly negative reaction from the public against them. Uh, I talked to Mandy Walsh, who's the director of public health for Delaware County, and she told me some horror stories. So my name is uh, Mandy Walsh, Amanda Walsh, and I am the public health director for Delaware County. I have a master's in public health, um, and I actually, my master's has a concentration in epidemiology, so it worked out really well uh, with the pandemic to have some of that background. And I have worked for the health department for the better part of uh, about 15, 16 years, um, and I worked in a variety of programs. I was the epidemiologist for a period of time, and then um, I took over when our former director retired, and I've been the director for about five and a half years. I always used to sort of joke about, you know, knowing some of these director responsibilities that are written in law that you kind of hope that you never actually have to utilize. Um, and then, you know, this pandemic hit, and suddenly now you're issuing quarantine orders and you're, you have, you know, all these powers that you, you know exist for something like this, but you're kind of hoping that you never really actually have to utilize that. So um, that's changed a bit. Some of the perspective, um, you know, I, I'm really, really good friends with our county attorney. That's been huge. I think um, the health department before, we didn't have nearly as many, um, you know, legal related issues. And it's not easy to be my staff. Um, you know, a lot of people wanted to know who the individual cases were. When this first started, um, I was followed. I had people parked outside of my home. I had notes posted on my door. I received um, Facebook messages from, from people that I had to turn that off. Um, you know, we had a, just a slew of comments, you know, on social media, obviously. Um, we had people calling us. Um, I had a few threats on the phone. 
So um, my kids were actually, you know, I, I don't think it was necessarily children, but you could tell there were um, some angst in schools. Um, my kids were actually, I had my middle school kid had a, a family that said to him, we weren't allowed to go on vacation because of your mom and I don't like you, you know, kind of a thing. So um, I'm assuming that must have been a reference to somebody maybe in quarantine or whatever. Um, so my kids had to hear some of that. Um, in the very beginning, I was really worried about that because at school, everybody was very, it was just sort of, there was a lot of angst. So whenever a new restriction or mandate would come up, um, once in a while, my kids would take flack because people were really angry in general. Um, and not that I necessarily had control over everything, but they knew my, my you know, people know who my kids are and what, what I do. So, um, we had some of that. Um, some of our, our clerical staff, you know, had people that were trying to message them, asking them, is so-and-so positive? You know, they would ask, try to ask them questions and they have to, you know, say, I can't answer any, any questions. Um, so it was a lot of stress, um, for the staff. I, a lot of the target, I think, was more directed at me, or at least we tried to have it so it wasn't on the staff, but our staff have been, you know, we've had people scream and yell at us, uh, some of the interviews are, are horrible, we've had people call us rotten names, um, we had a couple people try to come to the office to get at us um, with security, um, so that was really people that are angry, um, they want to come and they're, they're real, real upset, so that, that was that was large. Um, a lot of, of verbal abuse on the phone. A lot. A lot of it. Um, a lot of social media bashing. A lot of verbal abuse. Um, the verbal abuse on the phone takes its toll, though, because when you're doing case case investigations and you're trying to help people and you've had to interview multiple people um, and families and you're, you're really trying, and sometimes it doesn't work perfect, you know. Sometimes people get an extra phone call because the system is so taxed, um, but the verbal abuse is... Is her, could, could be horrendous, and many of my staff, you know, had horrible calls. And then, you know, we had complaints, so certainly I would address some of them, people that were really being awful, usually they were sent to me. Um, but again, you know, it, it was a lot of verbal abuse, a lot of it. Um, and people just stressed out because going to maybe a, a, an event, once things were open, uh, you know, I, would, I went to something, and, you know, I'm sitting far, far away, like people are complaining about all kinds of things, and, you know, they're I'm sitting right there and it's like I don't, I don't exist and it was just, it's, you know, people are frustrated, you know, so, um, there's just a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of angst and I, it's amazing to me what people feel that they can say to another human being, um, when they're upset. <laughs> well, that's all for this episode. We'll be back soon with a discussion about workforce in the NHS. The pandemic may have slowed down for the public, but for doctors trying to catch up on waiting lists, the hard slog continues. Given the lack of new doctors being trained to come into the system, what needs to change to make sure that the people already working in the NHS don't decide enough is enough? That'll be available on all major podcast platforms, so listen out for that. I'm Duncan Jarvis and this is the BMJ Podcast. Bye for now.